Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jody Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Abby Satius, and we are going to be talking about finding the deep river within. Abby is a psychotherapist, author, and speaker specializing in issues of self care for women. She offers workshops, retreats, and individualized coaching, as well as her popular Deep River groups. Her television appearances include NBC's The Today Show, and her work has been featured in O, The Oprah Magazine, Self, Women's Day, Fitness, Body, and Soul, and The Boston Globe. Abby has spoken to audiences in person and online across the US and abroad about how to live a soulful life in a speed-obsessed world. She has been in the mental health field for more than 40 years and has been a clinical psychotherapy trainer at training centres in the United States and abroad. A mother and grandmother, Abby lives with her husband outside Boston, Massachusetts. Hi, Abby, and welcome. Hi, Jody. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I came across you through uh, Psychosyntheses, and I can't remember what year it was, maybe 2017, I did your Deep River Within facilitator training. That's right. I remember, yes. And I remember reading your book for the first time, and it really, as a sort of busy body, as I'll call it, always busy and working long hours, it just really spoke to me in terms of slowing down. So I know the women listening today are really going to get a lot out of what you've got to say and as we dive deep into your book. Thank you, yes. So would you share about yourself and what brought you to this work and writing your book, Finding the Deep River Within? Sure. This began for me, as you mentioned, I am a psychotherapist. So eventually this came about because of working with a lot of women, but initially it was really about me. And it came about because of my experience as a mother of two young children, especially after my second child was born in the months and years after that birth, I just found myself really overwhelmed and not with anything special, just with the basics of working, trying to take care of the needs of my children, trying to take care of a household, um, I just felt quite overwhelmed. And I am basically an introvert by nature, I would say, and I relied up until that point very much on uh, recharging myself via attention to my inner life. So I had an inner life. I started journaling probably when I was 10 years old. I developed a meditation practice in my teens. And those kinds of inward-facing practices were really a source of sustenance for me and spiritual nourishment. And then my kids came along. And I realized at some point when my kids were still pretty young, maybe about five and two, that I had lost my inner bearings, that I was so focused on the busyness of um, and the to-do list of daily life that I really kind of, you know, was saying to myself, I used to have an inner life and where did it go? What happened to it? And that's when I began to work with some of these principles and practices for myself, but also at that time talking to the women in my life, both friends and also in my practice, I began to really understand that 
this was not just me and it was not just my inability to kind of juggle everything with grace and equanimity. It was really just about every woman that I spoke to had some version of this sense of overwhelm. Mm. And mind you, Jody, this was well before the explosion of internet access and smartphones and social media and all yeah. of that. And yet we were all feeling that. So we can, we can talk about the exponential mm. uh, acceleration that has gone on even, uh, you know, greatly since then. But mm. even back then that was, that was the experience I was having. So at that time, eventually I started some groups for women um, just really kind of tentatively, you know, seeing if there was some kind of appetite for women to come together and talk about this disease of a thousand things to do, as I called it. And there definitely was. And I did those groups for 10 years, actually, before. And people said to me along the way, you should write a book about this. You should write a book. And Many times I said, no, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. I said, no, 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 until finally I said yes. And, you know, really wanted to get some of these principles and practices that I had developed out to a larger audience, which is good because you never would have found this work in Australia, probably, if I hadn't written yeah, it. Yeah, well, that's right. And it's interesting as you're talking, I'm going back to when you said that as a teenager, you were already journaling and meditating. And I know for myself and certainly for the women that I've worked with over the years, most, I mean, I spent most of my teenage years being very naughty, drinking, <laughs> taking drugs, like totally disconnected. So when I hear you say that you were journaling and, and meditating, how come? How did you discover that so early? I mean, a lot of people only find that as part of their trauma recovery, I guess. So what started all that? Uh, that's a really good question. When I say I started journaling when I was 10 years old, I do not mean diving into the depths of my innermost being. Sure. <laughs> but I did it. I still have that diary. It was given wow. to me. It was given to me by, I think my parents gave it to me. It had a lock on it. And I decided, this is my perfectionist side, which we'll talk about, that I was going to write in it every single day for a whole year. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I did. I wrote in it every single day for a whole year. But it was, I went to school today. We did this. Mm -hmm. did that. It was boring or it was, you know, it was very basic. Yeah. But I think there was something that drew me early on to try to go inward and mm. certainly i'd say in terms of meditation which was more in my late teens once i was in college that started and at that time the human potential movement was very big in the united states and meditation was quite available and accessible i had a teacher at the university that i went to who was a sociology professor, but was teaching classes in yoga and meditation. And so I studied with him and that sort of began. But I, I feel like there were things that were available to me and not so hard to find, although it's much easier today than it was back mm, then. Mm. And meditation was not on the cover of Time magazine or, you know, at that time it was still more fringe, but it was definitely available. But I would say that I was a fairly, I would, like I said, I was quite introverted. I think I was quite fearful and I was trying to know myself and to find where is a sense of calm, I'd say. I was trying to figure that out from a pretty young age. So it was somewhat being drawn by some sense of there's something more. And it was also probably motivated by you know, I have these fears of the big world out there and how do I get a handle on that? What are some of the concerns that, you know, in terms of your, when did, when did you write your book? 
2006. Oh, and wow. Then, it's still so relevant. <laughs> it's, um, I know. And that's why what I'm saying is that back then, in a way, life was simpler, even that. Mm. You know, Concerns that women are struggling with at the moment. Well, of course, there is this collective fear. In other words, fear in the larger social fabric, the fears of about the virus, you know, will I or someone I love get sick? Obviously, will will I or someone I love die? What will happen with my kids' education? What about the world they're growing up in? There's a lot of financial stress, especially since the virus hit. I don't know what it's like there, but there's a great deal of that. There's also here in the United States, a great deal of political rancor and instability. Mm. And that's, of course, we've all got climate change, if not in the forefront of our minds, then in the very least in the back of our minds. So all of these concerns in the collective add a layer of subliminal stress at the best and mm. very and center stress for some people to whatever personal concerns have already been going on. There are long, long lines at food banks now. It, it's not good. So these kinds of things bring an increase of stress, as we were saying, to all the things that, have, that were already going on mm. and the potential fallout from that increase in stress, that is to say, potentially depression, anxiety, insomnia, physical symptoms, more conflict in relationships, and so on. So all of that is kind of heightened. Now, interestingly, for some women, especially the introverts, the collective slowing down due to the virus has actually been helpful and kind of enlivening and sort of balancing. It's like, I get to just stay home and not have to get into the fray as much. But for others, it's been too much alone time, too much, and in some cases, a lot of loneliness. And also for, for some women, an increase in this daily life stress, this disease of a thousand things to do because they're trying to work from home with kids at home. Yeah. And it's just really hard. The pandemic has created these these new challenges, mm, yeah. and it may have heightened some of the tendencies that were already there. And I find basically that many of the issues that you could say, oh, the whole world has slowed down. What do we need to be doing this deep river stuff that's about slowing down for? Mm. But that many of the issues that gave rise to this deep river work they remain issues for women. Like, for example, yep. the chronic issues for many, many women is self-judgment, self-criticism, and mm. related to that, a tendency toward perfectionism. So we'll get into this, but one of the six core practices is taming self-expectations, which deals with that tendency toward um, perfectionism. And the truth is, if you were hard on yourself before the pandemic, it probably didn't magically transform that at all. Yeah. Um, same with a lot of the other issues. You know, maybe some people's lives might be a little bit less busy and it's, you know, they don't have to make the commute if they're staying home. So it, it there might be a certain way that that decreases stress. But like you're saying, Jody, there also might be ways in which the stress is increased by the stay at home. So... In essence, I'm saying it has heightened some of the things that were already there. It certainly, for the most part, hasn't made some yes. kind of magic wand solution to anything. Yes, and the, I mean, there's blog posts out there, and I've even written one myself around finding meaning and purpose in troubled times. That's a nice idea, but um, people are really, really struggling. And I spoke to a, a colleague, Fiona, a few episodes ago. Um, that would be quite a few by the time this goes to air. But um, she spoke about uh, suicide and just the rate of suicides has, has, I think, in a couple of months was normally what, I think it was San Francisco, the article that I read, it had in two or three months, the suicides were the same as what they normally had in a year. So we know from um, reports like that, that people are 
definitely, definitely struggling. So this is definitely true here. I've also heard and read those reports, including very sadly, mental health issues, mm. depression, anxiety, and suicide for children, oh, which dear. is really, really hard to face. That that's part of the fallout from this. God, it's ter- terrible. So you started to touch on why sort of connect with the deep river work, uh, even though everyone has supposedly sort of slowed down and, and have in some ways, but not others. So you've written the book, Finding the Deep River Within. Would you please share with our audience what the deep river within is? So the deep river within, it's a metaphor that I use it's certainly not the only way to describe this, but it's a way, it's a metaphor that I use to describe the soul nourishing, I would say, the soul nourishing dimension in each of us that flows underneath the busyness of daily life. So we all have this place of depth within us. In my view, it's it's basically, it's a birthright even though it may have been covered over or drowned out for weeks, months, even sometimes years, you could say there are many, many different names for this inner realm. And there probably are as many different experiences of it as there are people. Some people describe it as going home. For some people, it's the place of contact with the still small voice within. Others say it's where they go inside themselves to connect or reconnect with God or with meaning or with creative inspiration or with a sense of the big picture of their life. So it's this inner realm, this place of depth, and whatever we call it and however we experience it, it really is an important antidote to the sense of fragmentation, to the sometimes frenzied experience of daily life that we have many of us and certainly many women uh, on a daily basis. And the important thing about it is that, uh, well, there are many important things about it, but contact with this deep river realm can offer us, can give us the qualities that we need. We touch into these qualities that, that we need to be able to live well and deeply on the surface of life, qualities like wisdom, courage, compassion, patience, vitality. So we drop down, if you will, and again, that's part of the metaphor to drop down to the or drop inward, you could say, as we do that in this deep river process, that that the point of it is to create conditions that invite these rich resources that we do have within us if we can slow down and pay attention enough to tap these resources. So we want to be able to invite them to flow into our daily lives. And that's what the Deep River process is about. When we think about slowing down, what are some of the blocking beliefs or the things that get in the way from actually doing that? Yeah, so I do talk about blocking beliefs and just to, it's probably somewhat self-evident what blocking beliefs are, but they're basically the mental naysayers that hinder our momentum in going toward a goal, toward any goal. They're the beliefs that we have, either conscious or not, that kind of can stop us before we get started towards something. So And there can be blocking beliefs that relate to each specific one of the deep river practices Mm -hmm. uh, might have its own blocking beliefs, but there is an overarching blocking belief that I would say is the first and most common one in relationship to this process of slowing down finding some stillness, dropping down to the deep river realm. And basically that first and most common blocking belief is, I don't have time for this. This is so, so common. And the thing about blocking beliefs is that they wouldn't have any power if they didn't have a grain of truth in them. 
and that's what gives them their power. But they are not the truth with a capital T. So they really are simply thoughts that we have that can, you know, that, as I said, they can put a drag on our forward movement. So I don't have time for this. Sometimes is true that if you want to go for a leisurely walk outside and drop into yourself and appreciate nature, and you want to do that on a day when you have a serious work deadline and you, you've been procrastinating, so it's, you're behind on this report that you need to write, you don't have time to take that walk. But the truth is that a lot of times we say to ourselves, I don't have time for this, when it's one of these, uh, let's say, seemingly optional activities, like many of the activities for that involve spiritual renewal or nourishment. We think that those are very optional compared with our to-do list. Mm, yeah. Um, but... Uh, we actually, many times, we actually do have time. It's a question more of prioritizing than it is of actually literally not having the time. Or it might be a question of some other blocking belief, like I'm a little scared of what it's going to feel like inside if I slow down and um, mm-hmm. take time for this kind of activity. So I think I will just... It's not necessarily conscious, but I think I'll just find myself saying, oh, I don't really have time to do that when it's not actually true that there's something else in the way. So that's the number one priority, mm-hmm. yeah. the number one blocking belief uh, that kind of is, is across the board for so many people. And the thing about it, Jody, is that our culture rewards this busy, this over busyness, this kind of go, go, go. So there's not a lot of incentive from the culture to take that time, to make that time, to do these more intangible, nourishing things. Hopefully that's beginning to change a little bit. But Well, look, I, I've got to say, I've got a story about that. My um, daughter is in, going into year six next year and she was running for the leadership team, you know, school captain and all that kind of stuff, pre- prefect. And the leadership workbook that they got I had to send an email to the school about it, as therapists do. It was all about busy, busy, busy. And one of the things said good leaders arrive early, stay late, and just basically everything that goes against work-life balance that you could think of. I mean, there was a whole list of things on there. Every time I read one, I just was like, are you kidding? That's terrible. What a terrible thing you're teaching these kids. It was all about working harder, exactly as you're talking about. And these kids are um, 10 and 11 years old, and that's what they're being taught. Exactly. I mean, I'm sorry to hear it, but I'm not surprised to hear it because it's the water that we swim in. It's the air that we're breathing. And I guess I can't go to Australia from here in order to get away from it. Mm. It's pretty much everywhere. We have exported this crazy busy. I mean, I don't know if this is still true, but at least in Europe, I don't know if it's true in Australia. People used to actually take real vacations for a chunk of time, like a month or six oh, yeah, weeks. We, we do. And and if we if we think about Europe too, I think in some places they still have an afternoon break, you know, after lunch, they'll still have a bit of a siesta. But um, in Australia, look, I notice in online groups with therapists that therapists, I just read this morning, I had four days off and I feel so rejuvenated. I thought, are you kidding me? It, would, it takes me four weeks to rejuvenate. <laughs> but we typically tend to take at least two week holidays here and every couple of years, we'd take a three to five week holiday and that's something that is non-negotiable. Australians love to travel, but I think the more American business dominates our business, the more uh, pressure there is for people to, you know, because their their US counterparts aren't taking holidays. And I've had clients that have said that they had to get up at um, 4 a.m. for meetings because there's been a meeting in New York at uh, whatever time. So it's definitely creeping in here, but we're still holding on to our holidays for a bit longer, I think which is good so and that's what I mean by we're exporting this because I mean it was years I've cut out 
newspaper and magazine articles for years and did a lot of that when I was writing the book about, you know, how the culture encourages this. And there was an article years ago about how many people, they have this vacation time and they don't take it. So it's not Mm. that they're not being given it, but the culture of the company and, and work culture as a whole is so geared toward not doing that. It's almost like there's something wrong with you if you take the vacation and people were were not doing it. It's just real craziness. And then mm. what you see is a lot of a fallout from that. People get sick. Mm. I mean, that's mm. the way people end up taking time is the well, 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 it makes something bigger than makes them end up having to slow down. So we're going to talk about the six practices, but just before we do, if there's someone out there listening right now and they're they're really identifying with everything that you're saying, how might they take that first step into getting past that belief, I can't slow down? Hmm, Good question. So to work with a blocking belief like that, the first thing is to become conscious of it and to understand. So even just by listening to this, that in itself is the first step because you're becoming conscious that I don't have time for this is sometimes true, but don't assume that that is always the truth of your life. Because if you make it conscious, then you begin to have some ability to have some choices and then you you challenge the belief and sometimes that is all it takes there's an example i'm thinking of a client um from a number of years ago who she was a young woman she was working with me and she one of the things that she came into a session asking for was she was wanting to get a little more in touch with herself she was feeling very disconnected And we talked about journaling as a way to do that. And she said, I used to journal. I asked her if she'd ever done it. And she said, I used to, but um, I just don't have time for that anymore. She was in school at the time. So we went back and forth about how could she do it. And she said, oh, I really don't have time. And I eventually said, this is an example of challenging the belief. I said, well, you have for the last few weeks managed to carve out an hour a week to make the, have this appointment with me. How is it that you have made time for that? And she went, oh, <laughs> oh, right. I, how did I do that? And it just kind of took her aback and she realized she had somehow managed to do that. So if she could do that, then it might not be impossible Mm. to take 10 or 15 minutes two or three times a week to do a little bit of journaling. And that's what broke through it. You know, if it's a more stubborn or entrenched blocking belief, you might need to do a little more to investigate the origins of it. But a lot of times with the blocking belief of I don't have time, it's pretty simple. It's recognize that that's not the whole truth and challenge it and then begin to look for ways that you can do it. Now, the other thing that's important that I really emphasize throughout all of this deep river work is the the principle of small steps. It's really, really important because if you're thinking, okay, in order to do any of what we're talking about here, I have to turn my life upside down, transform it, maybe leave my job, disinherit my kids and go to a monastery. No, it doesn't need to be drastic. Yeah. In fact, if you're thinking that, that's one way that you end up not doing anything because Mm. it feels too big. So if you think in terms of small steps, it can be really helpful. So a a simple, you know, maybe I'm going to sit down when I'm having my morning tea or coffee. And instead of multitasking at that time, for my first two or three minutes, of, I'm just going to sit there and really enjoy the taste of this tea or this coffee. Uh, That could be a step towards slowing down. 
for me, as someone who specializes in working with women in relationship to self-care, I absolutely agree with you that it's important to challenge that, to be able to say, well, let's, let's really look at this and maybe to educate about blocking beliefs, about mm-hmm. the idea of, I don't have time for this being not necessarily truth with a capital T, to examine what's the motivation, to stay in touch with the motivation for why do you want to do therapy? Like, mm-hmm. what's of it for you in your life because when something is really important we do make time for it you know we do yeah so maybe backtracking to why why are you doing this mm-hmm. um and try, not not in a pejorative way in any way but just to try to get them to connect with why it matters uh which is a lot of what the deep river work is about it's really about what really matters to you and how do you structure your life to reflect what really matters to you? You know, that quote, that wonderful quote from Annie Dillard, I have it in the, in the epigraph to my book, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. That's beautiful. Yeah. So are we how what are our priorities and are we are what we do in our daily lives does it reflect our true priorities? You know, not every minute of the day. Sometimes we're going to watch a junkie TV show fine, but are we paying attention to what matters to us and to how we spend the precious little time I'm aware of the older I get that we have on this earth? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, when we think about uh, finding the deep river within, you've mentioned the six practices. In terms of your book, I think we're just going to touch briefly on each one today. And of course, anyone listening can buy your book. Would you take us through the six practices? Absolutely. And feel free to um, ask me anything about any of them if if they're not clear. So again, just to set the context, this Deep River process is about creating conditions in our daily lives that help us, that encourage uh, connection with this deep river realm. And so these practices are all in different ways intended to help us do that, to create those conditions. Sometimes it's possible that we might, by grace, kind of drop into a sense of wonder or a sense of meaning without trying to do anything. It just happens. But a lot of the time we need to create conditions, especially in this faster is better culture, that help us find our way to that deep river realm or help the qualities of that deep river realm to flow up, to bubble up into our lives. So the first and and most fundamental of these practices is called take time in. And what I mean by time in is taking some time that is uninterrupted, that is by ourselves, when we can drop below the surface busyness of life and just tap into those reserves of wisdom and creativity and stillness and so on. So this is the practice of dropping down or dropping in, and it can take many different forms for some people. It might be that sitting and just having that cup of tea and paying attention while we drink it. For some people, it might Mm. be For some people, it might be meditation or yoga, might be taking a walk in nature. I had one woman in one of my groups who, for her, it was, she, as I talked about the practice, she realized that she had four kids, I think, And she realized that after everyone was in bed at night, she was sort of a night person and she would go around her house and water her plants and sort of tend to the plants in her house. She realized that was her time in. So it doesn't necessarily need to be something 
that you're not already doing. It might, if if you want have intended to try meditation and you never have, that might be a new form of time in, but it could be something that you're already doing that nourishes you, but it's not time with a friend taking a walk as nice as that can be. It's really about you gathering yourself to yourself and spending time with yourself. It's not about connecting with others. We as women spend a lot of time connecting with others and Mm -hmm. being in connection. This is about being in connection with ourselves. Yep. So that's number one. And in order to be able to carve out that time, as well as for many other reasons, we need to have the second practice, which is making boundaries. So this is essentially the ability to say no to what we don't want or don't mean to do in order to have time and energy to say yes to what we do want and do mean to do. Sounds pretty simple, right, Jody? <laughs> Not as easy as it sounds. It's a really fundamental skill for keeping our actions aligned with our intentions and also for avoiding sort of frazzled feelings and overscheduled calendars. So we can come back to that if you want, but that's the essence of making boundaries. Maybe just while we're here, I think because um, we might end up running way over time otherwise, but maybe just briefly say, so firstly, what exactly is a boundary and why are they important? Well, a boundary is just what I said. It's essentially the ability to say no. It's being able, I mean, I'll give you an example that just happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. I had some work to do in the morning before I started seeing clients in the afternoon and a friend texted and wanted to talk to me. And she's not a friend who asks for that very often. She's also a therapist. She had had a cancellation. So she was free right in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I felt the pull to do that. And I made a boundary, though, because I knew that if I said yes to her at that moment, I was not going to get this work done, which wouldn't have been impossible, but it wasn't like a deadline. But it really was not my intention for that morning was to do that work. But I could feel the urge to say yes, and I made a boundary. I said no, but I didn't say no, never. I'm never going to talk to you. I said, how about this time? How about that time? And we're going to speak later today. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of a boundary. Another boundary um, example, so a lot of times it's a boundary is a saying no in relation to people, but it's also something that we need to do, obviously, these days, very much in relation to technology, you know, boundaries in relationship to email and social Mm -hmm. media, Mm -hmm. you know, can we turn some of that off at times? Um, An example in the book, um, not not in relation to technology, but in relationship to things, I use an example of when my kids were young and I was sitting in the living room and I was taking some time to do some writing before the kids came home from school. And I was just sitting there enjoying this moment of quiet. And there was a basket of unfolded laundry sitting on the floor in a laundry basket near me. And I could literally feel the pull of the laundry (laughs) to get folded. It was like pulling on me to fold it. Of course, laundry can't talk, but I, (laughs) I could feel it, hear it. And I remember, and I wrote this in the book, I, I said, no, literally out loud, like not now so that I could finish enjoying myself, um, that's another kind of boundary. It's just because something is sitting in front of you like dirty dishes in the sink or laundry that isn't folded doesn't mean you have to do it right then. And 
I just, just just while you're on that, I, I think that that is so important. And when you said the laundry, of course, it can't talk. I remember doing the Janine Roth Women, Food and God retreat. And one of my big issues was around uh, sweet, sugary drinks and where I felt like it was calling me off the shelf in the supermarket. (laughs) And so setting boundaries too, you know, when you're struggling with binge eating or things like that, where I I was probably drinking like two litres of um, like a chai and then an orange juice and then something else and something else and something else. And it was using it. I was a new parent. There wasn't a lot of sweetness in my life. And it was like this instant sort of hit. So when you said that about the law, laundry calling, when I stand in the supermarket, and I still have to do it sometimes, it's been about three or four years now since I I let go of that, but setting a boundary with that, when something, oh, drink me, drink me, take me off the shelf, I have to actually stand there and do exactly what you did with the basket. No, that's actually, that's not going to serve your well-being. Uh, It's not that I don't ever drink drinks like that, but there's a history of diabetes in my family. So Mm. it's about saying no in that way too, I think. Absolutely. That's really true. And in that kind of example, when it's not saying no to another person, but saying no to maybe a habit, that mm-hmm. um, it's really important to understand that saying no does not have to involve harshness. Yeah. We don't need to be harsh or mean uh, to ourselves or to other people in order to be clear and firm and say no. We can say no kindly. So sometimes women, I think we're so conditioned to be responsive to other people that there's often this blocking belief of, if I say no, people won't Mm. love me or Mm. people reject me or I'm a bad person. So that's one of the blocking beliefs often that women have to address if they're going to be, you know, more successful at at creating these boundaries. And it's just so important because it helps us really keep on track with what we want to be doing with our lives instead of just being pulled from one thing to the next, being in Mm. constant response mode. Well, I'm thinking too, as you talk about kindness, it's actually, you know, my example is it's an act of kindness to myself not to do that. When you're talking about the washing basket, it's an act of kindness towards yourself to have half an hour of peace, for example. Absolutely. It's a true act of self-care. So then uh, the next uh, one is befriending feelings. This is a big one. And it's for, for many of us, it's, I'd say, in some ways, the most difficult, challenging of the practices. This It's just basically about getting more comfortable with uncomfortable feelings. It's developing, cultivating a a friendly attitude toward our emotions uh, and especially toward what are sometimes labeled as the more negative or difficult emotions. When we're able to be more friendly toward them, it means we don't have to keep ourselves busy in order to avoid them. Mm. And a lot of busyness is about that. It's about avoiding uncomfortable feelings. So the result when we can get friendlier with those not so comfortable feelings, we've got more emotional resilience. We're able to be more at home in our own skin. In your book, you also write about uncomfortable positive feelings. And this isn't something many people sort of talk about really, because we think we're always sort of avoiding negative feelings. But um, would you briefly just touch on that for people? Because I, I come across this a lot, even, well, you say more, what does that mean for you? It's usually less obvious. A lot of times when I work with this befriending feelings in my groups, it's really usually people go toward the feelings that they have been not sort of allowed, if you will, to feel in um, as they've been growing up. But it's also true that sometimes it's really hard for people to acknowledge or allow positive feelings in. Um, mm-hmm. It can be challenging to learn to tolerate praise or appreciation. And sometimes I've noticed that a positive feeling when it comes toward someone, if it it's almost as if 
it hits the place of unworthiness mm. inside. Mm. And when it hits that place, it becomes an uncomfortable feeling. It becomes difficult to receive. So beginning to cultivate the ability to receive positive attention is also, for some people, not for everyone, but it, it oftentimes, if there's a, a sense of unworthiness or I don't deserve or if there's been a real lack of love or that kind of attention mm. up, then it can just be something that that women need to learn to, if you will, tolerate. I mean, at, at on first glance, it seems sort of counterintuitive, but it's a very common experience, actually. Well, I, I come across this a lot in my I work with a lot of early childhood trauma and uh, that's presenting in eating disorder behaviour okay. and addictions. It's, um, you know, often, uh, although people are avoiding their, their pain and whatever else, it's a lot more comfortable in some ways than the, than the positive feelings of care, love, acceptance, compassion, because there's been such a lack of that in their early lives. Exactly. And uh, they often don't trust it. And, and that's why therapy takes such a long time sometimes because you're having to build up that trust for people to actually allow the care in. Exactly. And this, I would just point back again to this principle of small steps that mm. the idea of titrating, whether it's, you know, a feeling of grief or a feeling of love that you're trying to befriend, um, that you can titrate it, you can go toward it just a little bit and then pull away and a little bit more and pull away. And sometimes people need the support of a mm. therapist to do that. If there is trauma, as you say, it's a mm. little bit, it's helpful to have support. And so then we come to a very popular practice. <laughs> Will you say more about, you know, we'll move on to, to the next three now. So taming mm. self-expectations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a very, very important one. I have to say, especially for women, and it's certainly one that for me personally, being a sort of recovering perfectionist, it really, uh, a lot of the examples in my book uh, in this chapter are actually about me because <laughs> this is my story. Uh, in self-expectations, this involves learning to recognize the self-critical voice of perfectionism and to begin to take it a little bit less seriously. This is really addressing that critic part of us. I like to identify it as a part of us that is probably trying to protect us, but that does it in very often quite harmful ways by being uh, harsh by being critical, by mm. trying to force us into behaviors. And the result when we're able to lighten up on ourselves is more self-acceptance, less of the nonstop driven doing, or, you know, have to do everything at 200% of my capacity <laughs> all the time, no matter what. You know, we get to the point where maybe it would be okay to do it at 100%, uh, whatever it is, making the bed. <laughs> Could I do that so that it's not picture perfect some days and that's mm. just fine? I mean, it's a silly example, but women drive themselves crazy on all kinds of very tiny things like this. Mm. And I'm, I'm putting myself in that category as well. So it is about learning to lighten up our, on ourselves, to give ourselves a break. And um, it also leads to more enjoyment of life, mm -hmm. <laughs> less driven quality to how we do what we do. Yeah. So that's in brief. I mean, there's so much I could say about each one of these, but let me just go through the other two. The next one is the practice of presence. This addresses the mental busyness. We've been talking about things that have to do oftentimes taking time in and making boundaries address that outer busyness. Practice of presence addresses mental busyness, the inner chatter that keeps us preoccupied with the past or the future and basically missing the moment, whatever the moment is that we're in. 
So this is what all the mindfulness practices uh, cultivate, is the ability to do what we're doing when we're doing it, to be where we are when we're there, which again sounds simple, but it's not always so easy to do. And the result of being able to practice presence some of the time in our day is more ability to tolerate hard things and more ability to enjoy the good things in our lives. So it really is about more appreciation of life just the way that it is rather than constantly striving or wishing for life to be other than how it is. A lot of times people describe the deep river realm as an experience of being very present, of being very in the moment. So I would say this practice is both a doorway to the deep river realm and also a way of experiencing that deep river dimension. And then the last but not least is do something you love. Obviously, when we get busy with the to-do list, we can forget about the renewing power of doing something just for the fun of it. So this doing something you love, it refills the well, it lightens the burden of responsibility. And a lot of times that doing something just for the pleasure of it totally falls off the to-do list, doesn't ever even get on the to-do list mm. when really caught up in our sense of responsibilities, in, in all our sense of have-to-dos. But taking time for one to-do can make a list of have-to-dos seem very much more manageable, actually. Mm. You know, I'm thinking too, I'm just applying these to, you know, I work with a lot of women with disordered eating. And uh, I mean, these days, I've talked about this before, it's disordered eating's kind of crept into most women's lives at some level. And thinking about do something you love, I'm thinking and practicing presence, actually going back to that as well, being present to the food on the plate, because when people aren't present, they miss it and then they end up coming back for more or there's a deprivation there. You know, they're either going too permitting or too depriving. And the same thing with do something you love, eat something for the pleasure of it, because I think a lot of people these days are eating you know, there's, you know, the wellness warriors on Instagram and you can only eat clean and you can only eat this and you can only eat that. And there's this real, I'm thinking about Sarah Babe, is it Breathnath or something? Her oh, books, yes. She says about just sitting down and eating a piece of chocolate cake. And when you allow yourself some pleasure like that, you don't then need to go and binge on that because it's part of everyday life. And I know that I'm going to be able to have a piece of chocolate cake at any time. There's no sense of sort of deprivation there around it. So yeah, I'm thinking a lot about food when you mention joy and something you love and pleasure too. So that's great, Jody. And and I do a silent day-long retreat for mm-hmm. women every mm-hmm. year. I just did it actually, it was virtual this year, but it's basically there's a lot of silence in the day and a lot of practicing of presence. And one of the things that we do is a silent lunch. Oh and wow. And time and time again, I've just heard this comment over and over again, because we do have time after lunch for people to just talk about how was that? What's your experience been? Mm -hmm. And so often women, there'll be a comment or two or three in any given retreat. It's amazing how much less I needed to eat because I paid attention (laughs) and they're astonished. They don't need as much as they thought they needed because they were paying attention to what they were eating and really being present with the food. Yeah. Wow. Very powerful. So I could talk to you all day and we could go into all of these practices, but um, for women listening, obviously they can dive deeper in your book, but just briefly before we sort of round things up, once women read your book, they're starting to put some of these into practice. How do we keep the river flowing? I guess, how, how do we maintain? Yeah, so important. I would say a couple of things. First of all, practice really is the key. These are called practices. I remember, you know, when the book first came out, I just did so many radio and TV interviews and 
they would always ask me things like, again, this is a symptom of the faster is better culture. They would say, so could you give us three quick tips? No. <laughs> Slow down. I tried to be polite about it. (laughs) Oh, I can't give you three quick tips. That's not the point. But really, it's true. The point (laughs) is about these are lifelong practices. They Mm. are not quick fixes. And there should be, hopefully, there could be taking heart, taking encouragement from that. It's not something to just do one and done or get it over quickly. It really is a process of embedding these as practices, not every single one. I mean, I think to start with what what calls to you the most, which of these practices Mm. would be most relevant for you in your life right now. You don't have to do all of them all at once. But thinking in terms of small steps, which I've said a number of times, and I think that's because it's so important to the way of of working with these, and to think of them as practices to incorporate over time. So that's one thing. And another thing related to that, that I talk about as a particular form of journaling, which is to keep a victory log, by which I mean any small victory in the direction of embedding some of this work in your life, write it down. It doesn't have to be long, but just keep a log, keep a journal that notes the ways in which you are slowing down. It could be simple. We had dinner tonight without our devices. That's mm. a victory. Um, Any small thing, or I I turned my email off while I was trying to write a report, any of these things, they're victories. And it helps to note them because then you build kind of a reservoir of being able to carry on. And when if you get discouraged, you can look back and go, oh, yeah, actually, I have done a few of these things. And yeah, maybe I can do a few more. The other thing I would say, Jody, that has been so important in doing this work over time is about getting support. So mm-hmm. to keep it going, I talk about having a deep river buddy. And this is also the reason why I did this work and have done it with groups of women, not just, I mean, it's great to read the book, but I had women who had read the book and then came into a group And they said, I mean, the feedback was the the book gave me a lot, but being able to talk about these things in a group with other women took it to a whole nother level for me. So whatever way that is that you can get some support, it's hugely helpful. Yeah, really important. Right. Well, we've come to the end of our time. So would you share with women how they can find you and what your offerings are? Well, I wish I could share more offerings. but I know. The, uh, first of all, women can find me and men can find me as well, I have to say. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Men have read this book and found it quite useful. <laughs> but uh, it is, the subtitle is A Woman's Guide to Recovering Balance and Meaning in Everyday Life. Mm-hmm. And I am at www.deepriverwithin.com. That's my website. As far as offerings go, I'm also on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter. I'm in a process right now, though, that, as I said, I just did the day-long retreat, and I probably will be doing that again. There are Mm -hmm. a couple ongoing groups that I do for women, and people can email me about those. I don't have them on my website at the moment, but the issue is that I'm in a a process of moving. I'm going to be moving from the Boston area to be closer to my family out in Seattle to the West Coast. So there's not a lot of offerings going on at the moment while I try to clear out my sure. house. Look, it's going to be a few months before this goes live anyway. And I guess, of course, you know, there's obviously um, COVID happening as well in terms of in-person sort of offerings. But certainly head over to Abby's website and get on your mailing list too. And uh, exactly. that way they'll get notified when you do have something. Will you be opening a new practice when you move to Seattle or...? Yeah, I'm not retiring. I'm going to probably be maintaining 
clients that are here, some of them via Zoom mm-hmm. once I get or you know virtually once I get out there. I don't know yet the extent of what my in-person practice will sure. be up just all two up in the air. But if people are at a distance, I am obviously doing distance virtual yeah. work at this point. So that's certainly a possibility. And you know, Abby at deepriverwithin.com, that's the way to reach me by email. So Fantastic. And of course, you've got lots of trained facilitators around the world, actually. I know there's another, you were talking about another girl in Melbourne, and I know there was people from all around the States when I did my training with you. So that's what I was going to say that I'm really hoping more than my own Deep River offerings that people will look to some of the other facilitators and many of them, not all of them, but many of them are on the facilitator page of my website so people can find info there. Perfect. I think the women listening today are going to get so much out of what you've been talking about. And I certainly know that even though I've read the book several times and working through some of the practices myself, there's still always more to, um, you know, listening to you talk, I think, oh, yeah, I need to do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I wrote the book. It's partly for me. It's a little bit for everybody else, but it's also for me. The deep river needs the deep river too. Yeah, that's right. And you can obviously buy the book from your website or from Amazon or people in Australia. I think there's, um, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes anyway. And of course, in this day with everything happening, try your local bookstore, at least get them maybe to order it in so that we can support local businesses as well. Yes, I second that idea very much. So thank you. Thank you, Jody. Oh, thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure. So for the show notes, go to the Soul Center forward slash soul sessions, finding the deep rhythm within. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind, and soul, get Jody's free 65 page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.